Bible is full of controversial passages that are sure to start a fight. In fact, you don't even have to read that far to find them. Just open it up to the very first page and you'll see exactly what I mean. God creates the heavens and the earth in only seven days. Or is it supposed to be billions of years? It doesn't matter because before you can find an answer, you've already moved on to magic trees and talking snakes. The entire narrative is so bizarre and fantastical and very different from how most people think about the Earth's origins today. Yet many Christians are adamant that this story is 100% historical, that this is how the world literally began. Do we have to choose between scripture or science, or are we missing something more? What are we supposed to do with the Bible's seven-day creation story? When I first began working on this podcast nearly two years ago, I knew that this topic was one I had to cover. But it's a little different from all the other episodes I've done. You see, the problem isn't that Christians aren't willing to talk about this topic. Instead, we can often be a little too eager to jump into the debate. Growing up in church, it felt like the scientists who studied evolution were made out to be enemies number one of the church. In youth group, I remember entire study series all about the true science only found in Genesis, showcasing all the ways evolution was just a ridiculous myth made up to discredit the existence of God. All the while, I've seen plenty of people walk away from the church and give up on a relationship with Jesus simply because they couldn't make sense of the creation story when compared to science. The more they see Christians push this hyper-literal interpretation of Genesis, the harder it is for them to believe in any of it. For many, this cultural rift between science and scripture is too wide to cross. On either side you land, it can feel as though you're not allowed to question any of it, lest you make a complete fool of yourself, or even worse, fall into heresy. This war between evolution and the Bible completely consumes our conversations about the Genesis creation story. But there are some people who believe it doesn't have to be this way. I am uh, currently a soon-to-be unemployed uh, visiting professor at Hope College, so I'm on a one-year job there. And I think I have some job lined up after that. This is Dr. Drew Johnson. He's been working as a biblical scholar for over 13 years. He's also a host on several fantastic podcasts like the Biblical Mind Podcast and OnScript. I was originally going to go into research psychology for a PhD. I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years when I mm. got married and when I finished my, my undergrad. And the guy who basically led me to Christ said, hey, I think you should go to a seminary. And I was like, what is seminary? And he explained seminary to me, and I was like, oh, that actually sounds kind of awesome. I, I went to seminary not even knowing why I was there. Just I just enjoyed it so much. And I, I worked at IT on overnight shifts, like overnight 12s. And mm. then I went to seminary during the day, and um, and I just enjoyed it so much. People would say, oh, you're going to become a pastor. I'm like, no, that's a fool's errand. Who wants to become a pastor, you know? And, 
Uh, and by the end of it, I actually did end up working full time at the church and, and then getting ordained. And I was doing degree, uh, another master's degree. I did two more master's degrees after my MDiv. And mm -hmm. I just knew that I really loved the higher education space. And I wanted to, honestly, I just knew I wanted to think things through that I knew would take years of research to think mm -hmm. through. And so, and I liked teaching. Um, so that seemed like a good combo. And so I just kept going down that road and then stumbled backwards into every opportunity uh, that I've ever had. So I've never earned a single academic opportunity. I've always stumbled <laughs> backwards into it. One of those opportunities was to write his book, What Hath Darwin to Do with Scripture, which just released this past December. Uh, so there was a grant, uh, like a sabbatical grant at uh, the Henry Center at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I, I gave a paper somewhere on on evolution, like a biologos form or something, where I was just questioning how people separate out Genesis 1 through 11 from the rest of the Bible and kind mm. of treat it very differently, which there's good reasons to do that. I mean, literarily, right. it is actually a very different section there. Yeah. But conceptually, they're separating it out and saying almost like, you know, it's an appendage that's doing some wacky stuff. And I and I was mm. arguing, like, actually, no, it's inseparable. It's interwoven. And yeah. It's actually interwoven in really interesting ways that most people don't consider. And uh, the guy who ran that grant at that time, uh, Jeffrey Fulkerson, the project he was working on is getting evangelical scientists and theologians mm. to talk to each other to try and reconcile what do they do with the evolutionary sciences, the mm. findings of the sciences, the very strong belief in the scientific community mm. in evolution and kind of like the theology behind it. And, you know, is there a way to reconcile these? And I think I was, we went to, lunch or dinner or something uh, at a conference and I was just free floating these ideas that were bothering me about this whole, the whole, whole how people generally treat this topic and how it seemed to ignore uh, the world of the Bible how they actually are trying to argue about the nature of reality and mm. he said hey you should apply for one of our grants instead of engaging in the usual creation versus evolutionary debate John takes a very different approach he compares themes explored in Genesis about how humans and animals thrive and develop and compares them to the way Charles Darwin described our origins. In his studies, he highlights a lot of surprising similarities between the two, going as far to say that the book of Genesis might have been the most Darwinian text in the ancient world. How is that possible? Based on the way we talk about it today, these two ideas should be polar opposites. How could scripture and modern science be anything other than enemies? To answer that, we first need to understand in a little more detail what has made this conversation so charged and why that wasn't always the case. You, you mentioned that there's a lot of things that bother you about um, how Christians oftentimes treat uh, scripture and science. Um, why is there such a large cultural tension, do you think, between those two worlds of science and mm. scripture? Well, I, I mean, in, in the, there is a whole crew of scholars that this is their, their world. Mm. Uh, and they call this the myth of the science-religious conflict. Mm. Like these are somehow in conflict with one another. So it's, it's widely acknowledged. Now, if, if you don't work in that uh, world, so you can, you can go to the physics department next to their department at Cambridge University and maybe have somebody who's entirely clueless, like they might repeat the conflict myth mm. that science and, and religion are completely incompatible with one another. So 
uh, it's not yet been exposed for, and I'm using myth here in, in the kind of the negative sense, the, you know, the false uh, story yeah. of, of how something got came around or is related to something else. So I think part of it is just ignorance that people don't realize that, A, most scientific inquiry has emerged from the Christian world and from theologians yeah. who are actually working out what they call natural theology yeah. alongside special theology, divine theology. Mm. Um, and that, you know, most theolo or sorry, most most major breakthroughs in scientific discovery happened by people who were who were very religious. Mm. Newton famously was looking for physical instances of plurality mm. um, because of the Trinity. And so he just thought there have to be there have to be physical instances where something can be one, but also many things. Yeah. Uh, and and the prism and light experiment was one of the things that he thought was proof. I don't know proof, yeah. but it was evidence of the Trinity. You mm. have white light. But when ex when refracted, you can see that it's actually many different types of light in that one white light. Mm. So this kind of idea that, and even today, you know, the questionnaires that they you know they do this polling of scientists to kind of see where they stand. Mm. Most scientists in the anglophone world, the English speaking world, I think are consider themselves theists. They believe in God. Mm. So it's not even like there's this small enclave of three percent of scientists who are actually you know, right. faithful, devout Christians who are like up against the world or something like that. Most scientists actually do have some general belief in God. Mm. And there are many devout Christians in science. Um, but I think it is true that even though there are lots of Christians in science, a lot of Christians who are scientists have not reconciled their theology to their science. Mm. Um, in the same way that lots of Christians who are executives at companies have not reconciled their theology of business with their actual business practices, yeah. their, their theology of economics, the biblical theology of economics, et cetera. So mm. if that's the case in science, um, then how much more so in the pew where people are just, you know, barely tracking the, the conversation. Yeah. It, it almost feels like uh, a, a lot of the, the general dialogue that I remember growing up with um, in a very Southern Baptist uh, capital S, capital B, Southern Baptist kind of environment right. is it almost felt like this um, this war between like the right. evolutionists versus uh, versus Christians, and that it was like mm -hmm. you know evolutionists that were trying to hide things, or you know this almost conspiracy like mindset trying to devalue God, right. I'm going to guess the word agenda was used in that. In <laughs> oh, those of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see that not only is that not true because there's a lot of theists in the scientific world, but, you know, even scientists, they're, they're, they can have issues reconciling that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that uh, without the scientific knowledge or context of like someone who's mastered it, it seems like there's a lot of people that get so focused on the current dialogue that they kind yeah. of miss um other opportunities yeah and to be fair it's it it is a complex discussion i mean it's yes. it's a it's a complex set of things that are interrelated that you know i do this for a living i have the luxury of having time and effort to think through these things right and it still is is very you know i still have to sit back and say that how are these things related to each other and you add into that you have 
on the on the Christian side, you both have I won't name any names, but you can right. fill in organizations here who are saying like, no, it absolutely must be creation in this very particular way. Mm. Um, and it can be no other and everything else is kind of like, I don't know if they'd use the word heresy, but it's, you know, unbiblical or something yeah. like that. And, and then on the other side, and actually you could take that exact same sentiment and plug in, yes, evolution just happened and, and that's mm. the biblical way and you just need to get used to it. Or yeah. no, absolutely evolution could not have happened and that's just the biblical way. And you could, and so there's this very hardcore, and I'm going to use the word agenda, but not nefariously, but there, there is a very overt agenda. like. You just need to believe this and get over it, and then we can have a conversation about right. what's important after that. Right. Yeah, so I can imagine that's a very confusing landscape for most people, um, and so they'll choose the one that probably feels safest. Yeah, and I, I also think that, you know, if someone's coming into Christianity for the first time, they're just like, all right, this this God sounds oh, yeah. amazing, Jesus, awesome, down for it. What's up with this talking snake? Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a chance that you may be trying to figure this all out for yourself right now. That, or you could be looking for more evidence to support your side in the debate. But if you are hoping that this podcast is going to tell you which view to believe in and why, you're going to be disappointed. But hold on to that feeling as you continue listening, because I think it showcases something really important. Reading through Dr. Johnson's book, I was amazed to discover that our biggest issues aren't with the modern scientific landscape or even with the Bible itself. Instead, our biggest issues come from the way that we try to read the Bible. There, there was one example that you gave in your book that I, I think kind of perfectly showcases the, the issues that we have where you're talking about in middle school, you raising your hand and are just like, hey, where are oh, the yeah. dinosaurs in the Bible? Yeah. And in that point, you bring up that idea that our questions kind of get in the way of what the the Bible's mm. agenda, you know, what the Bible is yeah. wanting to do. Can you kind of elaborate on on that? Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm genuinely unclear as to whether the biblical authors would want to talk, even if they knew about dinosaurs, would want to talk about something like dinosaurs. Um and this happens, I mean, in many ways, this topic is a great pry bar for lots of topics. You, mm. could, you could talk about sexuality or whatever. Uh, you could talk about political thinking, uh, economic thinking, household. How do you run a household? Mm. Um, because we often just bring the wrong question to the text. I was insisting, like, I wasn't going to go one step further until you tell me where are the dinosaurs in the Bible. Um, but you could also ask, you know, other questions where people are like, tell me whether I can have sex or not before I'm married. Mm. Like, well, you have to read, you know, hundreds of pages before you pick up like, okay, I think you actually need to reserve sex for the marriage relationship, even though it doesn't come out and say that directly. Mm. Um, you can't, you know, abuse people's human rights, even though it doesn't really say that directly either. Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get a bad answer. And so... Mm. A lot of a lot of theological practice and what I consider good biblical theology, like thinking through what the biblical authors think about a topic and how they say it, it's kind of learning to reframe your question. So I often will do some training with mm. church leaders where um, I'll say like, hey, let's just ask a simple question. Like, can Christians get tattoos? Very popular thing now. Or it's sure. a fad. It's been a fad for like the last 20 years to yeah. get tattoos, right? It used to be when I got my first tattoos, it was you know, prisoners and bikers only had tattoos. That was <laughs> yeah. it. And sailors, you know, that was it. Mm -hmm. Now everybody has a tattoo, right? Yeah. Um, but should Christians do it? 
Um, and if you just ask that question, does the Bible prohibit tattoos? Well, mm-hmm. no. I mean, there's that one verse in Leviticus 19 that says yeah. you shouldn't get tattoos or cut. But that's an episode for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's not really addressing the what what is the kind of tattoos we're talking about today. Right. And, you know, it's only superficially addressing it. Um, so you have to reform that question and say, like, okay, well, what do the biblical authors think about the body? What's the importance mm. of the body? What's the um, what are the boundaries of the body? What can you can you and can you not do with the body? What mm. are the passages that seem to indicate um, the kinds of things that are appropriate to the body and inappropriate to the body? Um, and when you map that out, you get a pretty definitive answer where not just tattoos, but all kinds of things would fall on a spectrum of wisdom mm. uh, and biblical teaching. So this is just another one of those where are the dinosaurs is is a legitimate question from our culture and from what we know of the world as well. We know there were dinosaurs, right? right. Um, and so uh, so it's not like it's an illegitimate question, but it's not one that the biblical authors are going to be able to just easily answer. So you have to say things like do the biblical authors tip their hat to in any way some kind of history before the garden event, mm. um, right? And this is where people can really start debating. Yeah. Um, or, or, um, or is their answer going to always be, you know, if you could, if you could zap Moses into the present, uh, into the room, and explain to him what we think we know at this point? Right. Is his answer going to be like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's fine, but you just need to know God created all of that, right? Uh, no matter what, right? Mm. Um. So I think there are better and worse ways to put questions to the text, and uh, and then you have to follow very closely their line of thinking over, you know, not just one section of text and cherry pick, but lots of different texts. So yeah. that's that's what I learned to do in seminary, and kind of um, I, I appreciated it because I was a new Christian then. I didn't know people did it other ways. Right. Um, then I became a pastor and found out people had very different ways of approaching <laughs> yeah. the biblical text. I, so. I I think that's a really helpful. Um, key idea here in this conversation. The questions that we have today are really important questions. Um, And they are questions that the Bible can even talk to us about. The issue that we run into is um, when we approach the Bible like an encyclopedia rather than Mm -hmm. a story that is trying to give us wisdom. We're trying to go and find the definition of these different things and see, all right, is is this listed as a sin? Um, right. Or, you know, we're talking about different themes and ideas and concepts, and then we pick a verse out of a entire 13-chapter-long letter um, rather than actually saying, well, what is this letter as a whole is trying to say what is this little section of a story mm-hmm. trying to communicate what's the it's the difference between knowledge and wisdom knowledge is saying is this categorized as a sin whereas what you're kind of saying is the bible the, the biblical authors were trying to get us towards wisdom right. what can we do to know god better to have this build this relationship more right yeah and in fact it's usually that question um, that I tell people when when you are asking yourself, is it a sin to do X? It doesn't even matter what X is. I mean, mm. I had hundreds of students in my office 
over the years asking me all kinds of crazy things and normal things like why can't i have sex is it a sin to have sex with my boyfriend if i don't mm-hmm. move in with him you know like that, that kind of stuff and, yeah and it's a genuine question it's a it's a real question like it doesn't say in the bible that i can't mm. um or there's no commandment and the problem is that for a lot of us uh we we stop there if it's listed as a sin which really that's not even how the biblical authors deal with the right you know it's in some places oh it's a sin to do x okay therefore uh i can check that off i don't do that and i'm good to go Mm. well that doesn't give you wisdom okay well what about something that's very similar to it but not identical to that practice right Mm -hmm. is that a sin um so uh so you see the biblical authors are very hesitant to give you list of do's and don'ts. And even mm-hmm. in, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or especially Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. where you have long list of don't do this, they're never exhausted, you know, especially like no. I always point out Leviticus 18 has all the, your relatives that you can't have sex with, but it doesn't mention grandma, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so like, is it okay? Is it therefore okay? Well, no, they have a very different, they're trying to create a wise paradigm of it's things like this. If, you know, if you can't have sex with your your mom, your stepmom, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, um, then how much more so can you not have sex with your with your grandma, right? Yeah. Uh, almost like, do I really need to say it uh, that you can't have right. sex with your grandma, right? Yeah. Uh, it's building wisdom, as you said, rather than merely knowledge of some particular rule that you keep or break. Yeah. And I, I think that that is a really important topic and something that I definitely want to explore more because uh, there's a lot of those those passages in Leviticus, in uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy that can be weaponized in that sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think for this conversation, when as we're talking about the creation narrative, Adam and Eve, the talking snake, what are the questions that the Bible is actually interested in exploring here? Like, is it just a, mm-hmm. is it trying to give a history? Um, is it trying to be a, a fable with a good moral or is there something more going on here? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, uh, you know, fable history. Yes. All of that. I mean, I do mm-hmm. think the biblical authors think that they're giving some kind of a history, how literalistic they want us to read it. People have varying opinions on, I have mm-hmm. my own opinions on that, but um certainly i think they want it to be a fable you know i was was just talking to my class the other day like what happens to red riding hood and hansel and gretel and like what happens in the end of those stories and Mm. um and some of the students knew they're like oh they all died and that was the end of the story i'm like (laughs) exactly in the original stories they all died because it wasn't just a cute story it was actually Mm. meant to teach you how not to get dead Mm. in a dangerous world right Mm. so i think the story of creation which might be one of the most economically and creatively told stories in the ancient world bar none you know it's it's very sophisticated there's lots of sophisticated literature but it stands near the top of of literature in its time um it really is trying to tell a story about what a human is and Mm. not in detail like you really got to read a lot further to get that yeah um but what are humans uh how are they related to their environment in very Mm. um particular ways we always want to say what's unique about humans because we're worried about humans and, and animals being kind of mashed into one. You know, yeah. a human is just another animal. Well, yeah, that actually is true according to the biblical logic. A human is just another animal according mm. to the biblical logic. But we're different, and the difference is not because God breathed the breath of life into us because the animals got that as well. And the difference is not because God uh, formed us from the dirt of the dust 
because the animals were also formed from the dirt of the dust in their thinking. Right. So the difference lies somewhere else. And it wants us to think about our obligations and responsibilities uh, to creation. And then it also wants to explain uh, what went wrong. You mm. know, why is everything so messed up today? Why, why is Lord Tennyson not completely wrong when he says nature red in tooth and claw? Um, yeah. Why, why do things break? I read a book once by a material scientist called Why Things Break. Mm. It did not actually answer the question at all. <laughs> it actually answered the question. It was a lie. Like I, I wanted to write the guy and be like, this is a great, it's fascinating book on ceramics and glass and like how things break. It, but it wasn't why things break. It was how things break. Mm. Um, and Genesis is absolutely telling a story why things uh, break and mm. not how they break. And so in some senses, it's not trying to do an engineering or a science project, or a biological taxonomy of things, um, or even a causal, like, you know, it's it's causally mystical. So day one, God says, let there be light, but it doesn't come from anything. And it, there's yeah. nothing causing the light. It's not going anywhere. It's not shining on anything. It sounds very unscientific. Yeah, the verse, the yeah, and any ancient Hebrew would have read that and been like, well, we know where light comes from. We got what? Lightning, fire, sun, moon, and stars. And that's right. it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so it's doing something quite, I, I'm going to use the word mystical advisedly, but it is yeah. even for an ancient native Hebrew speaking Iron Age Hebrew person, they would have been squinting their eyes, looking sideways when they heard this text, Genesis 1 being read. Mm -hmm. going, what, what exactly is going on here? You keep on saying morning and evening for a day, but there's not a sun right. that makes a day until yeah. like day four, right? There's like, there's some right. play going on here. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think something that's really important to point out you you mentioned the idea of fables or mystical or in your book you mm -hmm. you talk about these ideas of good enough narratives or good enough myths right right um yeah but i think what's really important is that what you are not saying is that oh genesis 1 through 11 is myth mythical mythology and then here's the right. science to help us fill in the gap that's not what you're saying because right. you absolutely point not. out that the world of science also uses these good enough myths that's it, mm -hmm. using these narratives in very similar ways. This has nothing to do with um, the, the factual accuracy of anything. There, there's a difference there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, I'd forgotten about that part of the book, but that's an important part. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, and that is one of the things that, you know um, I just want to say like, not religion and science, but specifically the Hebrew Bible, and you can tag in the Christ New Testament Christianity because it mm. just follows the Hebrew Bible and its thinking. But the Hebrew Bible and science are uniquely related to each other in a way that Greek philosophy and theology are not related to, to science and mm. you know these strong ways, right? I mean, in some ways, science is a long history of of dropping off Greek thinking. You know, the more it dropped off Greek thinking, the better it became at, at doing science, uh, and the more it became like how Hebrews thought about the world. So I'm definitely want to see science in these two. Like they're not doing radically different things. Everybody is trying to tell a good enough story about why they think the world is the way it is, mm. and they're not trying to tell a good enough story about what can be seen through a microscope or with the naked eyes, they're trying to tell a good enough story about what cannot be seen, the invisible forces that make the world the way it is today. Mm. So you could talk like in particle physics and astrophysics, you can talk about dark matter. They're all trying, I mean, talk about mystery, mystical and mystery mongering. You know, there's like this, 
Uh, we know there's something out there. We're just going to call it dark matter. We think <laughs> it came with the Big Bang, but we have no real idea. And we can't actually mathematically account for it at all mm. um, because there, there need to be like three times as much as we thought there should be if, in order for it to work out. But we know there's something outside out there. So we're just going to call it dark matter. Yeah. Or in, you know, but, but in biology, too, you're, you're trying to explain not what any anybody could see with their eye down the t- the microscope but you're trying to explain like what are the invisible forces that are making the thing happen at the bottom of the microscope scope mm. happen that are trying to explain the relation between a cell and the water that surrounds it or something mm. it, it feels like creating some sort of folk tale or mythology right. around um things that are fact things that are true that feels like a sin you know it feels <laughs> yeah. like something that you're not supposed to do because you instead of creating a world in your own head you're supposed to be discovering it but mm. if we couldn't connect the dots and create um connections even when we can't see them uh i don't think that we would actually be able to get those narratives or mm-hmm. to, to get those facts here, I, I think what your point is here is that mythology is positive. Uh, it's a positive aspect. Um, it's inescapable, yeah. It, and it's inescapable. No matter whether or not you are a pastor or Charles Darwin, you need right. those narratives to help explain and orient yourself. You know, you need to be right. understanding of, okay, this would make sense with this idea. Um, so let's poke at that a little bit. Let's see if that's actually true. And let's see, you know, not just how this glass breaks, but why I I think Mm -hmm. in that there, there's a really interesting, um, I, I hear a lot of people try to kind of reconcile science and Christianity by saying it's like apples and oranges where it's just like, Mm -hmm. um, science explains the how and Christianity explains the why. Um, but I think what you're saying here is a little bit more nuanced where it's they're what they're both doing is helping us orient and understand the world we live in and the, that both can be helpful. Um, and both evolutionary theory and Genesis one through 11 Sure, they may present things in different ways, but they can both be helpful and end up talking about very similar ideas. Yeah, and uh, very overlapping ideas. And so, in in some ways, the why. I'm glad you brought up the 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 how and the versus the why d- distinction, which a lot of people, even scientists, I hear them say this all the time. Religion helps us think about why, but I explain how this happened. Um. But the biblical authors, I think if you pulled them into the present and told them that, they'd be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you the how as well. Um, and that, that story about how things happen is an attenuated, and it's attenuated within science as well. It sharpens. So it, everybody is using, if I can just be so bold or crass as to say, biblical techniques for mm. trying to explain both how and, and, I would say some scientists are taking on the challenge of saying why as well. Like, why yeah. are things this way? There's Sean Carroll, who's a Stanford physicist, who wrote mm. this New York Times op-ed. Um, and it was titled something like, Physicists haven't understood how anything works in quantum mechanics for 100 years now. <laughs> and then the subtitle was, 
that I'm paraphrasing, but it's not, it's a really long title like that. Yeah. And the subtitle is, and worse, they don't even care. Right. <laughs> um, and, and he's, you know, and he's a senior physicist. He's not like some guy on the sidelines of physics. You know, he's working in a se- in a, a senior research position. Yeah. And he's just saying, why are we not trying to, ex- we just rehearse these dogmas. I mean, everything he says sounds like he's talking about a religion, a mystery mm. religion. We just rehearse these dogmas. We tell people, you know, this electron is spinning in both position A and position B simultaneously. That should be in conflict, but they're not. And there's a good probability. And the cat's either dead or alive. Yeah. And, the, and then 18-year-olds are looking at us, blinking at us like Dora the Explorer. Yeah. Completely confused <laughs> by what's going on. And we just say, we don't, I can't explain why this is the case. We just mm. believe me, this is true. Right. Mm. And, um, and so that's the, you know, and the reason why he's so dissatisfied with that is the same reason I'm going to guess a lot of people are dissatisfied with, you know, very crass religious Christian, assumption, you know, where people are like, Hey, it's just true. Jesus came to save your soul right. to get you into heaven. And that's just true. You just need to believe that. Right. Yeah. And people are like, well, that, Give me some causal networks here. Give me some some story in which this right. actually connects to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think Sean Carroll's frustration is the same that we feel often with simplified, um, disconnected stories of Christianity. Yeah, I I think that that's a really important point as well. Um, both two points. One, it sounds like pretty much everything is a narrative. Um, you know, right. even when you don't think it, uh, it, it is. That's why movies are so good at telling stories and helping us understand ourselves better or uh, understanding ideas. That's why you have word problems in math. You know, it's right. s- storytelling is so important to human understanding. I, I, I think that that is the key here where um, why you can say no creation narrative and uh the evolutionary theory they're apples and apples both of them can be helpful in helping us understand truth we should be careful though um just on the language here and i'm only doing this because i I ran the manuscript past a few scientist friends of mine they said quit saying it this way you're just going to make scientists mad which is good uh i'm glad they saved me from myself yeah but I, I do compare the creation narrative and I say it, it's talking about very similar things in a very similar way to natural selection, the way Darwin posed, it, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily how evolutionary biologists would pose it to like, you know, a lot of people, even in Darwin's day, thought he was wrong on some of the aspects and like specifically violent competition. Yeah. He, like that's where everybody thought Darwin was wrong if they disagreed with him. And there's, so there's a lot of debate about whether violence in the face of scarcity is a necessary reaction mm. across the evolutionary processes or not. Yeah. Um, and so, but that, that was the, the surprising thesis that the more I, th- that got the book going and, and I originally pitched was, Hey, you know, Darwin in natural selection, very cleverly, very astutely picks up on what's going on in the world that, you know, um, scarcity drives violent competition. Mm how well an animal fits to their environment by climate, you know, adapt adaptation or whatever, um, helps them to survive and propagate the species. And, um, and the biblical authors talk about the exact same yeah. thing. It's talking about the exact same thing in action today. Right. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's a way in which I think if we, again, if we could pull the biblical authors into the present, explain to them what Darwin is talking about, I think they go like, yeah, yeah, he's, as the philosophers say, he's not wrong. Like yeah. he's on to something. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, there is something like that going on in the world. 
The question is, is it an explanatory fantasy? Does it make yeah. sense of the history of biology? Yeah. And I think they would probably go, uh, no, there's some more, there's yeah. something else going on or there's more going on. Or, But yeah. I, I think an important part in that um, is the idea that you as a Christian to take the Bible seriously, do not have to close yourself off from Darwin. And when you do that, in fact, right. you're actually closing yourself off of different ideas and themes that the Bible really wants you to pay yeah. attention to. And yeah. both of them are exploring the same thing. There are differences, absolutely. But the main idea here is when we when we're so caught up in this cultural tension that we perceive that myth, uh, that bad myth, um, then right. we stop ourselves from actually growing in the way God hopes through the Bible. If you're anything like me, you probably still have many questions and even more concerns. It's simple enough to say that we may have different questions than the biblical authors did thousands of years ago, or that our own questions can get in the way of seeing what the Bible actually wants us to learn. Maybe you can even accept that the Bible and Darwin both explore similar ideas in similar ways, but we've been throwing around a lot of words that most Christians would never dare use to describe the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's perfect divine word, that it is without lie or error, but if that's the case, how could we say that the creation story in Genesis is mythical? or like a fairy tale, or just even a good enough story. It could sound like we're degrading the Bible's truthfulness until it's no different than the make-believe fables we tell our kids at night. It's clear that we need to change the way we approach the Bible, sure, but can we actually do that without undermining the Bible's authority over our lives? We'll explore that and much more in just a minute. First, let's take a quick breather. We'll be right back. Thanks to Dr. Johnson for coming on the show, and thanks to InterVarsity Press for making this happen. They are the ones that actually published What Hath Darwin to Do with Scripture and several other books we've talked about here on the podcast. If you're interested in picking up this book or others like Nobody's Mother or Being God's Image, head over to ivpress.com using the link in the show notes below and use the promo code IVPPOD25 for 25% off your order. Again, that's IVPPOD. 2-5 for 25% off your order. Let's look at what we've covered so far. While the cultural debate between science and scripture has completely overwhelmed our conversations about Genesis today, the biblical authors had no knowledge or interest in that debate at all. This is a concern that we are imposing back onto the Bible, and our desperation to get it resolved has stopped us from seeing the full scope of what God has to offer. 
It's part of a nasty habit we in the church have, where we become so obsessed with our own questions that we lose sight of the questions the Bible is actually exploring. That mindset leads us to reading the Bible as an encyclopedia, scanning it until we have what we think is the relevant information that allows us to move on. But the Bible is trying to give us wisdom, not trivia. When we're so focused on our cultural debates like young earth versus new earth, evolution versus creation, we can miss the fact that the Bible is interested in so much more than that. We're no longer interested in being shaped by the Bible at all, being far too busy shaping our arguments. Yes, the Bible still has a lot of information it presents as fact about how the world was created and how life was formed, but all of that is acting as a vehicle to explore larger principles. Look past the cultural wars that surrounds this narrative and you'll find so much here about God's ideal for living with humanity and the hope he brings that can transform lives today. Dr. Johnson points out that this process is very similar to how scientists, even evolutionary scientists, use stories to help us explore and understand even bigger ideas. Both scripture and science are even commenting on similar ideas about the cosmos, the beginning of time, ideas too big to ever be seen with your own eyes. Through these narratives though, they both help us understand why our world looks the way it does today. As wonderful as that sentiment may be, the way we've been talking about how to read the Bible faithfully could easily be heard as an excuse to discredit the Bible's authority altogether. One thing that I really want to make sure that we discuss is um, the idea going back to the myths, the good enough narratives. Um, the idea that the Bible, and especially the start of the Bible, mm. um, can have something that's just good enough or fictional or myth mystical all of that sounds bad i mean you know as christians yeah okay that sounds bad <laughs> we believe that the bible is inerrant yeah. that this is yeah. god's word given to us you know that it's absolutely true doesn't exploring ideas through these fictionalized narratives doesn't that fundamentally make it less true yeah well a i don't I wouldn't say that they're fictionalized. Um, mm. Fictionalized fiction means different things in different depending on what circles you're in. So, some yeah. for some people, for most people, fiction means that it's just not, it's not true. It's completely made up, or it's um, not based in reality. Uh, but that's not necessarily what fiction uh, means, or myth in that sense. Myth can mean it actually means to report real history of real things that happened, but it's mm. trying to explain it in the kind of causal sequence. This is how we got to where we are today, as well. Mm. So I'm not meaning to imply that any of I you know I I'm happy to say maybe none of it is myth or uh, fictional or mm. unhistorical in any way, um, but that's still not what it's doing necessarily. It seems to be playing a different game than that. As far as the good mm. enough one, that's a great point. Um, and let me come back at that with a biblical argument, a simple one. Yeah. I'll cherry pick one argument, but it's a strong. <laughs> I think it's a really strong one. So you tell me yeah. if it sells or not. Um. The Gospel of John, actually, he overtly, the narrator of the Gospel of John, who we take to be John, mm -hmm. um, actually says, this is a good enough story. 
Hmm. I mean, he says at the end, there are many things that I could have said about Jesus. If they were to be written, they would fill volumes, right? But I chose these things, if I can just use the language here, to make a good enough story for you to trust uh, that Jesus is a living Christ, right? Mm. So he's admitting there that there's a grander narrative that the Christian tradition has always held that no one gospel is the truth, that the three gospels together, even though they have small you know, conflicts or seeming conflicts with each other, they're not, they're not identical to each other, but together they are a truer picture of who Jesus is. And each one of those are good enough to the task that they're that they're cut out mm. for, that they're made for, right? And you know, Papias's comments in the second early second century about the Gospel of Mark, he said, you know, Mark wrote it from listening to Peter's preaching over and over and over again, and Mark's goal wasn't to get it in exact chronological mm. chronological order. So there's mm-hmm. a Christian who's in the apostolic uh, apostolic circle. Uh, just after John has died, mm. who says like, look, I live in this world. I know these people. I know what ha- I've heard the stories of how it got written. Uh, Mark's gospel is a good enough story from what he heard Peter preaching, which is mm. remarkable when you read Mark because you're like, wait, did, did Peter trash talk himself and his friends this bad? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Mark is hard on the disciples, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think the idea is is actually in scripture itself that they're not trying to tell you exhaustive things. They're trying to give you an on point, good enough story to get mm. you what you need to understand to become a wise and discerning people. I, I think that is uh, an incredibly helpful mindset to kind of go into it. I should have put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's an excellent, I, I think that's an excellent way to conceptualize the Bible and help conceptualize the paradigm shift that we need to make in order to actually interact with the Bible in the way that it wants to do. Again, it's not interested or rather it's less interested in facts Mm -hmm. and the encyclopedia mindset that we have. And it's way more interested in wisdom. We're not interested in uh, the scientific molecular processes that God did to create the world. The point is God created the world. I, for right. me, I, I, I think my dad was the one that introduced me to this topic. But as he's talked to people about this, he's kind of given the example of having to tell a child that their mother has cancer. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very complex uh, topic, a very complex and difficult conversation to have, not just emotionally, but understandably. How, how is this? Right four-year-old supposed to understand cancer and what it does and why mommy's sick, you know? Right. And you have to completely change your approach. Mom has a boo-boo, you know? Mom, she's feeling bad and she's feeling sick because she has a boo-boo inside her. And you can't go into full detail, but if you tried to, um, it would not be helpful anymore. It would completely miss the point of the conversation. You know, as yeah. that kid gets older, he's going to understand what was actually happening and understand more of the science behind it. But the emotional understanding and the actual uh, action that they needed to take stays the same. Yeah. And I think the, the interesting thing for me, too, is, and this is a future book uh, I need to write, the biblical authors are not interested in, like, who knows whether they even understood the idea of molecules or whatever, you know, whatever is going on at this level beyond sight, right. uh, whether they were interested or thought about those things or whether they just kept them in, in pure terms of understanding like wind's invisible, but we know it does. Something. It moves. Something. Yeah. However, 
All that said, the Hebrew Bible is kind of the unique conceptual world that allows for that kind of st- scientific study. So, mm. well, you know, when your physicist just talks about the, you know, the laws of nature, the laws of gravity, the law of electromagnetivity, the laws of ther- thermodynamic, they and they use a, and I always ask students, I'm like, why are they using a legal metaphor? Mm. Like, uh, there is no like a law is a metaphor here. There obviously yeah. is no real law. And what does a le- that legal metaphor, you know, entail? What does it require in order to make sense? Well, mm. it, the legal metaphor, in its original sense, the reason we talk about laws, it originally comes out of political royalty, right? Mm. We have a king mm-hmm. who gives a law, and he enforces the law, and he regulates behavior according to that law, right? Mm. So it actually is. It's interesting to see atheists talk about the laws of of gravity. Mm. You say you realize that is a uniquely theistic metaphor. Like that metaphor yeah. doesn't even work unless you have a god who regulates the universe. Mm. So the very construction of the good enough stories in science, are, mm. and, and even a lot of the like the the possibility of why you could even investigate the world scientifically the way we think of it today, is premised upon the conceptual world of the Hebrew Bible, and mm. and not. The Greco-Roman world, not the Chinese conceptual world, not other ones. It really is uniquely firing on the backs of this. And I mean, there's a this in, in the intellectual history, you know, departments. There's this large question of like, why didn't science develop elsewhere? Why did the science, science you know, it's not like there were smarter people in the West than you know in the right. Europe and, and the Western world than there were elsewhere. There. Are, in, incredibly intelligent people everywhere in yeah. the ancient world but there's a what's called a critical intellectualism and a skeptical mood of the hebrew bible mm. that people have noticed from a long time ago that say creates the conditions and also like if you're if you're a hellenist a greek thinker you look out at the world and you say this is all false none of this is real mm-hmm. uh, and and my body is deceptive yeah like and i have no real access to it unless i do these very specific things right aristotle yeah. tried to crack that nut a little bit but never really <laughs> fully got there yeah if you're a brahmanist and hindu same thing none of this is real or or me and this table and this microphone and you are all one thing right, yeah, right. everything else everything is deceptive right it's uh the hebrews who who have this uh this non-animist critical real god in charge things follow uh regularly because of that mm-hmm. uh this very dependable god that creates the conditions for the scientific conceptual world mm. so no the biblical authors are not doing science but they're doing all what we call the prolegomena all the first work that it yeah. takes before you can get to science yeah. yeah the point is is the pursuit of science is very much connected to the goal of scripture yeah it's the natural extension yeah yeah the the goal of skip scripture is for us to gain more wisdom um to better observe the world better understand the truth and better relate to god and others and yep. science is building off of that yeah you just say psychology yeah uh, sociology physics yeah yeah you, you're wanting us to explore more to gain more wisdom to better understand the world let's do that let's go out and right. do that and i think that if you discourage that idea of asking questions and discourage that idea of exploring difficult topics um because they're difficult rather than exploring them because they are difficult you know like I right. think the goal of scripture is very much tied to the goal of science. 
when you discourage one, you are fundamentally going to neglect the other. Right. And kind of circling back to the very beginning, that culture war, that tension between scripture and science, do, do you think that engaging in that culture war, do you see that hindering a Christian's growth and or their outreach? Um, I, well, I think the, the metaphor of war here is mm. the problem, right? Um, I'm, a, I'm a combat veteran. I don't think anything good comes from war. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I, can tell. I mean, I, there's some necessary divine justice war going on in, in the Bible. And, and, uh, but outside of that, it's, uh, I can't see how that metaphor is a helpful one. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the, the problem is, is it assumes the worst and like even thinking like foxhole mentality, like when you're in a foxhole and you're getting attacked, like it's just bad guys and good guys and that's it. Like there's mm. no other categories. You're either yeah. a bad guy or a good guy. It's shoot or don't shoot. Like, like yeah. that's it. So that, that mentality just doesn't work. You know, what do you do with a scientist who's an atheist, but they're doing exactly what God created them to do. And the fruits of their research are actually helping all of us understand much better how mm. we relate to each other and to the world and how things work. And uh, I mean, my closest colleague and what I do in biblical studies is an atheist. Um, mm. You know, he's a Hebrew Bible scholar, but he's an atheist. He's a fantastic scholar though. And I learn a ton from him about the Hebrew Bible, right? Yeah. Um, so I just don't see any benefit from it. Um, do we need to go to war on this front? No, but I feel like look, looking and saying like, hey, what can I learn from those people over there? Even where I disagree, it, mm. even, if, it, even if the goal is to figure out better why we disagree and where we disagree, right? Mm. To find the, the boundaries of our disagreement more clearly so that we're not talking past each other. If you want to talk about outreach and like impact, mm most people will not only not be offended by that approach mm. saying, Hey, I have, you have something to teach me. I really want to know what, yeah. what we agree and disagree upon here. Um, most people will, well, like when I was not a Christian, mm. um, I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't into religion. I wasn't, in, I wasn't looking for any of that for uh, up until I was about 20 when I had like a absolute collapse. And then all of a sudden I was, mm. um, but the thing that kept me from mocking Christians was I knew sincere Christians who were like that and I couldn't write them off. I'm mm. just like, so whatever you said about Christians, you know, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is like the televangelist capital of the world yeah. in, in, uh, in the 80s. Um, so there are all kinds of crazy Christians around me. But I knew three that were like the most sincere, intelligent people I'd ever met and were and would actually like approach me in this way, way even as a young man who had all kinds of stupid things to say. <laughs> So it completely disarmed any argument that I might have lodged against Christianity, mm. right? I would, mm -hmm. I would always have to say, well, there's this guy, Nick, and there's this guy, my dad, and there's this other guy, Tim. Mm. Who, like, I'm sorry, you just can't say that about all Christians. Yeah. I, I, I think that that is a really, really helpful insight and just a really great thing to keep in mind because that's very much been my experience as well. Um, but, you know, when you're so used to that mindset of I've got to fight for what I believe, this is my view and I'm going to fight anyone who, who, you know, God's not dead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but I yeah. think that there's a, a sense of like, 
a real benefit of exploring, okay, other people that very much disagree with you still have something to say and maybe maybe seeing something in the Bible or maybe reflecting something that's in the Bible. Right. Because they too are created in the image of God. Exactly. And you didn't have the ability to see that because you have that different output. I think, um, you know, we, we can get so focused, especially on the creative creation narrative. We can get so focused on like, okay, well, is this real history or do I need to fill in the holes with like the, the real stuff? You know, we can get so focused on those individual viewpoints that we kind of until the bible is something that works for us and yeah. I, I think which are, those are not dumb questions is this real history or should we just supplant it with right. this other i mean that's those are natural questions we should locate those questions though that what we call real real history no historian 200 years ago would have called real history right, right? i mean like that's that's a floating definition of history that has changed over time and this happens to be our cultural version of history that it's yeah. facts it's what actually happened you know it, it goes back to to where the dinosaurs in the bible that's an interesting right. question and i'm sure that would make yes. a fantastic book but if that's all that you are wanting to see if you're not letting yourself budge and explore what the bible wants to explore then you're fundamentally yeah. limiting yourself yeah That happens best also not when it's just you and your Bible, but when you get a group of people saying, hey, we yeah. want to explore this question. And, and the wisdom of the group is always better than the wisdom of the individual, Yeah, um, which is why I think it's so dangerous to say like, all right, God, show me what I need to know for today. Yeah, Like that's not a horrible practice sometimes, but mm. if that's your only practice, it can be um, a downward spiral. I should say I, I probably came to this view that I always have something to learn from reading student evaluations. Mm. Um, because I just learned, or, you know, I'm a pretty showy, you know, I come across as arrogant in the classroom, I've been told. And I'm like, you know, because I'm always like trying to tell people what they should, how they should be motivated to think about something <laughs> or why I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, and so I'll get a lot of student feedback and, and always get student feedback that are just like, oh, I did this guy just lathered his opinion the entire time which actually i don't most of the time <laughs> but it came it sounded like my opinion to yeah me at least um and what i learned over time was and i'm sure some other people taught me this as well is uh don't ignore any student comments mm. um because because sometimes you just get hateful students students who are angry and they just like say mean things because they want to hurt you yeah um because because they were upset about something um and even then, there's always something that's true mm. in their comment. Uh, there, it's re- or it's reflecting something that actually is true about me. Mm. Um, and so uh, I, I feel like if that's true, even of an angry 18-year-old student who's just got an axe to grind, yeah. or maybe is just trying to get me fired because they didn't like my opinion of the Bible or something like that. Yeah. Um, then how much more is that true of a thoughtful person who's really like paid attention to creation? or human behavior or something that and just really trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Mm. There is still so much to explore when it comes to this conversation and plenty of resources to learn from. If you're just looking for a good next step to see this learning process in action, then Dr. Johnson's book is a wonderful start. 
In it, he explores a few key themes about where life came from and how we can be fruitful and multiply. Their themes clearly on display not only in Genesis, but also in Darwinian work as well. It's an insightful read I can't recommend enough. And again, you can pick up a copy at 25% off using the promo code in the show notes below. But if you're interested in exploring different perspectives and seeing what new insights you can find in each one, Dr. Johnson has plenty of suggestions to help you in your own journey. I think the two for, for Christians, um, BioLogos is a group that they're theistic evolutionists and different theistic evolutionists believe different things. So mm -hmm. like it's not one club, but they have some interesting articles. So if you kind of want to hear like what what that view might look like, uh, BioLogos is a place to, to go if you haven't considered that view. Mm. Um, I should also, I always want to throw Josh Swamidas's book in there, The Genealogy of Adam and Eve. He's actually one of the scientists who read through my book and helped me not commit a host of errors. Yeah, that book is weirdly both evolutionist and fundamentalist. Uh, so I actually don't know how I feel about that. I like, <laughs> I'm, it's, I don't think what he's doing ultimately fits with what the biblical authors are going to want to say. Yeah. But it's such an intriguing view that I'm I can't close my my ears to it. I very so, much agree with that. Yeah. Um, and then the Henry Center where I work, they have a ton of articles and essays on there uh, and videos of all the lectures. So they've been doing this creation project for a while, and they published all of this for six years worth of uh, scholars talking about evolution and you know various versions of anthropology mm. human uniqueness evolution and um, in the Bible uh, from both people who don't believe in evolution and people who do and yeah. uh, across the range so there's lots of informed thoughtful people in their circle that they have on their website there as well you can find a link to all of those resources and more in the show notes below Thank you so much once again, Dr. Johnson, for coming on the show. And thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast can be an encouragement as you continue to ask hard questions and explore your faith. If you liked the show, let me know by leaving a rating in your podcast player or by leaving a review. For more episodes and resources, be sure to head over to bit.ly slash thatwon'tpreach. Again, that's bit.ly slash that won't preach. Mm -hmm.